Ancient Greek and Roman literature, history, and philosophy have long been recognized as foundational to Western civilization. Accordingly, classics, the academic discipline that studies the Greco-Roman world and its cultural products, has historically occupied a prominent place in many universities. But the field of classics today is under attack. Princeton classics professor Danelle Padilla-Peralta, among others, have alleged that the field of classics has played a foundational role in the creation of, quote, whiteness, and that it continues to perpetuate white supremacy and the oppression of blacks and, quote, people of color. As a result, they argue, classics must either be thoroughly reformed or eliminated altogether as an act of restorative racial justice. Today, we're going to discuss some of these charges uh, and the future of classics in light of them. So welcome to New Ideal Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. Today, we'll be discussing the topic, Can Classics Survive the Charge of Whiteness? My name is Aaron Smith. I'm a fellow at ARI. And with me today is ARI senior fellow Ankar Gatte. Welcome, Ankar. And if you'd like to ask questions, just use the Zoom Q&A module, uh, or you can use the Super Chat in YouTube. So, Ankar, we are going to discuss... a number of issues related to classics as a discipline and some of the charges that have been leveled against the field. And you and I both read, well, we read a number of things uh, in relation to this, but I think the centerpiece that came up uh, on our radar and we, we both read was a piece in the, in the New York Times magazine uh, called, He Wants to Save Classics from Whiteness. Can the Field Survive? And it was... Uh, I don't know if you call it a biopic. It was a piece on this uh, associate professor of classics at Princeton named Danel Padilla-Peralta and some of his struggles to get um, to reform um, and or eliminate uh, the field of classics because some of the uh, alleged sins or pitfalls or problems with the discipline as such. Um, So I thought first what we would do is talk about, you know, what exactly are some of the charges that have been leveled against the field of classics um, and what kind of evidence is being offered for those charges? Because some of them have to do with historical issues, some of them have to do with what's currently the discipline looks like, and so on. Yeah, I distinguish at least two major threads or major strands that are being brought up. And so it was that article, but it's also he's a co-author of a faculty letter at Princeton that's bringing up some of these wider charges. and. I think this is obviously taking place in the wider context of discussions of race today and race and racism. And much of that discussion is pretty bad. And I think this is another example that you see it now in this field as well, that there it's bad, that the, the whole discussion, the whole framing of it and the two strands, there's at least these two that the the discipline as it exists today in the academic world is, I'm going to put it this way, it won't always be put this way, is discriminatory. It's racially biased in hiring practices, in recruiting students to become graduate students and going on to get their PhDs and junior faculty. So that there's something it, that it's inherently biased, non-objective in a racial way that uh, based on racial discrimination. That's one kind of charge. The other kind of charge that I think is more focused on classics as such, because the the first one, there's wider views about like the whole university is like this. It's racially 
discriminatory bias and it needs real overhaul. But the other one is, I think, more specific to classics, that there's something very problematic and problematic from a racial perspective in the very study of classics, in that there are classics departments and that we have a special focus on, I'm going to put it as Greek-Roman culture and history, but something like that. That's that's what I take as, uh, I'm curious how you think about it and if you think there's other strands, but I think there's at least those two major strands that are being, um, that are the points of attack. Yeah, I agree. But I think that, that, are you guys getting an echo? I am. I'm not. Okay, I'll ignore it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so there's there's an issue of, do classics departments today have uh, their own inherent problems? Um, And they may they may well be uh, just like a history or a chemistry or a math department might have their own problems. And so these are more university wide types of issues. If they do have these kind of problems, they're probably not distinctive to classics as such versus the kinds of things that uh, because classics is the kind of discipline it is that it has its own problems. I mean, one of the problems uh, or one of the things that keeps getting brought up is that the way in which classics and classical texts can be brought in to support um, unsavory causes. Uh, there are certain kind of uh, white nationalist groups, for example, which will adopt the, the, some of the symbolism of ancient Greek uh, uh, culture, uh, or that they'll think of the classics, um, the ancient Greek and Roman literature and so on, as the basis of white European society, and they'll put it explicitly in race, in, in terms of race versus it's, um, these are texts and uh, historical accounts that have been formative uh, for European, uh, European history, European civilization, European culture. So there's a difference, I think, between these texts being the, the, the province or the uh, heritage or uh, of some kind of white European society versus that it's, they've been foundational in the development of Europe and its trajectory. Um, but, you know, people often will point to uh, the fact that, you know, slave owners would uh, often appeal to uh, ancient Greek texts that supported slavery and so on. So there's a way in which the text can be co-opted or used or leveraged in certain ways uh, to support things that uh, we don't, in many cases, approve of now nowadays, and so there's a there's a concern about that. But there's also this concern that um, the classics has is kind of an elitist kind of old boys network um, that has just become the province of uh, whoever's a kind of the so called privileged elite uh, in society. Um, and there's a question of like, and that is that endemic to yeah. And yeah. What, right. So the accusation is that it carries out to this day, not that in yeah. some past 50 or 100 years, it was more of an old boys club, but that that carries out in some significant way to this day. Yeah. And one of the things that uh, so there was this uh, uh, it was an annual meeting of the Society for Classical Studies at the major professional organization within classics. And they had a they had an annual meeting in San Diego. This was in July. I think it was July. 2020. And there was a panel at which uh, uh, Padilla was speaking among others. Uh, and one of the, one of the ways he laid out 
the problems with the discipline, and now this is a bit more inherent to the classics uh, uh, field, is that he looked at, over the past 20 years, he looked at several major classics journals where, you know, classical scholars get their work published and so on, um, and pointed to uh, a disparity in terms of the number of women who had publications in the journals versus men. So this, it's a numbers disparity. <clears throat> and um, also uh, he looked into some of the basically demographics of the authors that whose publications had been listed there and pointed out there was also a numbers disparity between uh, the number of um, publications by white scholars versus people of color. Uh, and he, he says, this looks to me like a segregated, highly segregated neighborhood. This, this looks like an old, like a white neighborhood in effect. And so it, part of it is so he's pointing to these kind of facts to kind of reach a conclusion that the field now has, you know, it's, endemically racist uh, bias towards whites and against people of color. And it's an on, it was a, this is an ongoing thing in effect. Yeah. And that you can talk a little bit about why that presentation has made it sometime like into the newspapers. Uh, so it, it as, and the stories remark that most of the time these, at these academic conferences, nobody cares about what goes on other than the, the professionals in the field, the specialists in the field. But this 2019 meeting got much wider publicity and discussion in the media. You can talk a little bit about that wider thing. But I watched his presentation in this. So that what's being offered is evidence that there's some um, significant discrimination and bias in the in the field and about hiring and about uh, who gets into journals and so on. It was so utterly unconvincing to be i found it shameful actually the the presentation that it's it's these are all professors at university and it's though they've never heard of other field like economics statistics like what it would do what you would need to know to figure out what the causality involved in here so even if you get some outcome where the journals um Nine out of 10 articles are by males instead of females. Let's take, because he brought up both issues of sex uh, and sex discrimination and issues of race. So let's take just the sex. It would like to establish that the causality is there's some in the process of how the journal's uh, articles are selected and get published to establish that there's the, the causality is a bias that is favoring males as against females. You would need to do a lot of evidence. You can't just have this end result and say QED. This is what I had to prove that this. I mean, it, you would have to look at things like how many submissions are there, and by males and females. And you might think, if in the broader field, it's a problem if it's like ninety-five percent of the submissions to the journal are by males. You might think, well, this maybe in the broader field, there's some causality that's discriminatory towards women. But you can't think of the journal uh, editors if. Like almost all the submissions are males, and then most of the articles published are male authors. That that in that process, there's discrimination and bias involved. But it was it was so light on actual argumentation that it was almost that we already know this conclusion, and I'll toss out a few uh, points of so-called data that is that reinforced that, that we all know this already. But it wasn't an argument that it would stand up in any 
uh, academic discipline that deals with numbers. Yeah, I had the same response to that. And I mean, a number of things. So when, <laughs> when after he presents these numbers, and the idea is once you show disparity, you know, there's a lack of parity in terms of those men or women that you've established the causality to um, look, there's discrimination. But when he, he asks at some point rhetorically, uh, mostly, he says, well, what are the factors that, uh, you know, contribute to this, this disparity? And he says, well, some of the editors uh, got back to him and said, well, there's a gap between the number of submissions we get from female scholars versus male scholars. And uh, others said, look, it's just a hard thing to try to get to some kind of parity here. And he simply dismisses these out of hand. They get no, he doesn't consider them. He doesn't consider, well, that's an interesting point. Maybe I should look up how many submissions came in from female scholars versus male scholars or people of color and so on. Um, but there's no, there's no looking into that. And what it tells me is, look, we already know the cause. The cause is... Um, the cause is racism. The cause is, you know, a, an a institutionalized academic bias within the field. I mean, so, and, and this is why he's trying to dismantle some of these structures, as he calls them. Um, but there's so much more would need to be shown that it's race, and it's just taken too flippantly that this is, that this is obvious. Um, and, and it also, and, it's and worth... Noting that these are these are peer-reviewed academic journals, and so when the editors get uh, a submission, they don't know who wrote it. You know, they, they they these are anonymously reviewed. So I don't. I, I mean, how how would you show that, that that then I know this is written by a person of color who I'm going to then discriminate against, or this is a female scholar, and so on? Um, yeah, and that's question. part of why, like. You need real evidence to make the charge just because you have an outcome that's not 50-50 or in terms of race, how whatever you think the racial makeup of the U.S. is, um, 20% this, 5% this, that so journal articles have to have that distribution. And if they don't, that there's bias involved that you need so much evidence to think that that. Um, that that's what I found shameful about it. That these are academics at universities, and they know this, so yeah. they're this deliberately disregarding. Them. Them. Yeah. yeah, yeah, this isn't lost on them. And some of the pieces that were written uh, after this point out exactly that fact uh, that this doesn't remotely show that, and it's taken for granted. Though, if you were a member of the audience, you'd be unlikely at an event like that uh, to speak up. I think a lot of people are uh, a lot of junior faculty, particularly untenured people, uh, are uh, in, in effect scared to speak up and talk about these their th third rail issues. If you say that this is not really racial discrimination, that that's itself racism, um, and so I mean there is a, there is a really a real chilling effect uh, that this has on particularly not and not even tenured faculty, frankly. Uh, because there are all sorts of ways in which people can get hounded um, for views that people find uh, uh, inappropriate in some way. Um, but what was in, one of the things that was interesting about this uh, this Society for Classical Studies panel that we're talking about um, is that toward so one of the things that uh, uh, Padilla was arguing was that 
the institutional field of classics is a, basically a white neighborhood. It's a white boys club and that there's all this racism in terms of hiring and journal publication. It was mostly focused on journal publication. Um, and that we need to radically reform the field and bring in, uh, uh, get more articles published by people of color, more articles published by men. And since he acknowledges that this is kind of a zero-sum game because there's only very few uh, articles are going to get published, that just means that, look, white people are going to get published less. You're just going to have to give up some of your privileged uh, uh, place and you'll just have to take take a back seat to people of color because we need to get more people of color into the journal. And merit wasn't mentioned in this regard. Uh, it was just, look, you, you, you white people have so many for so long have dominated the publication in this field. You need to take a back seat. Uh, and in response to that, and in response to some of the other panelists comments, there was, um, an independent scholar, Mary Frances Williams had come to the mic and this, kind of created a rather awkward situation. She was pushing back on a number of the claims made by the panelists. One was that we, in effect, stopped teaching the languages, Greek and Latin. And she wanted to make the point is we have to study the languages, otherwise there's no way to have independent uh, uh, new scholarly work. If you don't read the Latin languages, you can't read the originals. Uh, and that's a problem. Um, but she made the point eventually, uh, I mean, this was a kind of a, a bit of a drawn out conversation. She made the point to Padilla that she said, uh, you may have gotten your job because you were black, but I'd prefer to think you got it on the basis of merit. And I think in that case, she wasn't saying you got your job because you were black, but she was saying you may have gotten this in effect as an affirmative action hire. But I would rather think of you as you got your job through merit. And she was commenting in effect on uh, the kinds of proposals Padilla was making was to let's actively just get more people of color into the jobs. In effect, advocating some kind of affirmative action sort of, um, as he would probably think of it as anti-racist sort of policy to get more black people, people of color to give white people a second place uh, in terms of hiring and so on. And she was pushing back on that. And then that, of course, was interpreted as a racist, uh, inflammatory com uh, comment and, you know, sort of the room sort of got really awkward and there was a heated exchange <laughs> between the two. Uh, and then she was, the lady was asked to leave the building. And she later wrote uh, her own piece in Quillette about, you know, how she got kind of, in effect, kicked out of the classic society for this. Yeah, I, don't, I didn't find her piece very convincing. And I did find something weird in that exchange yeah. that, um, because she's talking, were there three or four panelists? Uh, I think it was three and a chair. Um, yeah. But she was talking with the other panelists and then went to Padilla. And the first thing she brought up was this, that you may have got your job because you're black, but I like to think that you got it because of merit. And it wasn't clear why that's relevant to anything. So you can see it as some kind of response to what he brought up. But it would have been so much better if she actually addressed what he brought up and that one that what he's taking as evidence for the bias and discrimination in today's classics departments is not evidence and that his solutions are racist solutions, not to make it focused on him, but focus on what his 
actual 10 or 15 minute presentation was, that would have been so much more effective. So I can understand why people found that exchange weird. It's not to paint her as a she's a racist and she has it in for all blacks or something. Like that, but there was something weird about it. But the the much deeper issue is the way in which now race is the lens through which everything is looked at. And you can have explicitly racist proposals that we're going, the selection criteria is going to be either, uh, sometimes it reads almost exclusively or primarily or an essential way based on the person's skin color. And that is in many of these proposals, if you read the long Princeton faculty letter, it's all about the, all the criteria are going to revolve around a person's skin color, pigmentation, uh, that they're regarded as people of color. And that's seen as acceptable. And if not more than acceptable, like this is what it means to be on the side of morality. And if you're not on board with this, there's something problematic with your moral viewpoint. And this, it is explicitly racist and it blurs this idea of representation based on race is racism. It's the view that a person's race or skin color is essential to them as however you want to put it, as academics, as intellectuals, as thinkers, as uh, as individuals. So that we need representation across the different so-called races. And if there's this percent in the population, it has to be this percent in the universities. You need to distinguish, to have a proper view of this, discrimination from representation. You can think, for instance, in hiring practices, that there's discrimination involved and there's ways in which, and it can even be inadvertent, that the process by which we screen candidates, by which we interview, by which we hire, does discriminate against people that we would want to hire. So it's a problem in our process. You can think that and not think what we need is representation by race. What we're just trying to get rid of is any kind of discrimination, certainly explicit and purposeful discrimination based on somebody's skin color. But even if you think in the process, there's ways in which there's people who are who should get the job based on merit, but there's something in our process that is blinding us in effect to that. And it can be along racial lines. To get rid of discrimination is not to be for representation by race. And that is blurred in this, it's blurred in the faculty letter, it's blurred in this discussion of what classics departments should look like. And that is, um, to, to put it that way, is to put it as race matters, which is what racism, that's the viewpoint, that it matters to think of an individual, his identity, his moral standing, his intellect, what is the color of his skin matters to all of that. And it's, it's really, really bad. Yeah, and to put some some concretes on that, I mean, I agree with that. So, but let's put some concretes on that. So this, so coming from the faculty letter, this was written on the 4th of July, 2020, signed by about 350 Princeton faculty. Um, and it was co-authored by Padilla. And the demands include the following. Give seats at your decision-making table to people of color who are actively anti-racist. 
hire exponentially more faculty of color, elevate faculty of color to prominent uh, leadership positions, use admissions as a tool of anti-racism, require administration and faculty-wide training that is anti-racist, training which, quote, necessarily moves participants through stages of vulnerability, productive discomfort, and reflection, end quote. Give junior faculty of color an additional semester of sabbatical. Form a faculty committee to, quote, oversee the investigation and discipline of racist behaviors, incidents, research, and publication on the part of the faculty. And what counts as racist behavior or publication will be determined by a faculty committee. Punish departments that show no progress in appointing faculty of color, and so on and so on. And this is just what, Andre, just what you were talking about. It's making, it's institutionalizing race as a criteria for judging faculty and for, in a way, handing out rewards and punishments. Uh, and one of the things that Ayn Rand had said in her article, Racism, which is in the book, The Virtue of Selfishness, she says, quote, instead of fighting racial discrimination, they are demanding that racial discrimination be legalized and enforced. Instead of fighting against racism, they are demanding the establishment of racial quotas. Instead of fighting for, quote, colorblindness in social and economic issues, they are proclaiming that colorblindness is evil and that, quote, color should be made a primary consideration. Instead of fighting for equal rights, they are demanding special race privileges. And this is exactly the thing we need to be moving away from. And I don't think it's at all the right approach to what you might call restorative racial justice to then say the universities or the field of classics or the universities more widely uh, have institutionalized structures that bias uh, toward in the favor of whites against blacks and people of color to go then simply switch that and say the, the solution of that is to have it biased uh, toward in favor of blacks or people of color or, or women or whichever is the um, the minority involved against whites. Um, I mean, there's nothing you can do that's worse than that to just put people at odds with each other. And one of the things that uh, Padilla mentioned that finds frustrating is that, well, there's all these kind of whisper campaigns and, you know, where basically uh, uh, faculty have to talk uh, sort of amongst themselves in secret, not in public about what they think about these things, because, you know, you can't talk about these things in public. You'll be branded as a racist. But what, but what does he expect? How else would you deal with that? I mean, people are going to feel frustrated. They're going to feel um, that if they try to get a, an article published in a, in a journal or if they're on a, they're conduct, they're either, uh, they're looking for a job, they're on the job market uh, and they're, they don't want to be discriminated against on the basis of their race and they're worried that this might happen. Or you get a new colleague that comes on and they're black or Hispanic or whichever. And then there's the people talking behind it. It's like, oh, I bet that was an affirmative action hire, you know, and they don't know whether that's true or not. But you get these kind of campaigns because of what you set up. Um, I, and I agree also that, in, that this, is, this is, in effect, uh, institutionalizing racism in a, just a different form. Or it's like the same form, but just in a different direction. And yeah, this and this is not crazy. Yeah, and and unapologetic. Yeah. Uh, and and that's part of the, that's part of the problem, and it goes to um, the way in which people, I think, conceive of racism. That I mean, Ayn Rand's conception of racism is different than the way in which it's being used often in these contexts. That where you often will hear. 
uh, people who are not in positions of power or who are in a majority um, can't be racist because they think of racist as a form of uh, authority and oppression over other people. And if you're in a kind of powerless minority, you can't be a racist. But I think that's that's way too narrow of a way of thinking about racist racism. Um, so we're we're getting some questions and donations well donations on super chat so thank you for those and some questions you can ask questions both we're looking at the the uh chat on youtube but also on zoom you can post some questions and one of the questions is like the second part of what we want to talk about this was the wider framework in sort of the way that race is looked at and is being treated in universities that is is in effect, broader than the field of classics. It's affecting the field of classics, like most other departments and fields in the university, certainly the humanities, but I think more broadly, the universities. But so one of the questions is, isn't the attack centered on the contents of classics? Um, so isn't there something, in a, I'll put it differently, isn't there something specific about the field of classics that is under attack because these kinds of charges that the um, people of color are underrepresented in the department, in the journals, uh, or women are underrepresented, you can make about many of the, I mean, and if you take kind of Padilla's kind of evidence as evidence of that there's discrimination and bias, you can make it for a lot of fields in the university and indeed outside of the university, which is the kind of argument that is happening today. So that's the wider. But now let's talk a little bit more specifically about the field of classics and the idea that there's something problematic about this specific field um, that it, and that it's plagued by whiteness is one of the ways that we'll put it. So how would you Aaron, the, characterize like that dimension of it? Well, one of the one of the things that's been brought up uh, about classics specifically has been the way it's been taught and portrayed in textbooks. Um, uh, these are, I think, more superficial, but I think you can look at this in different ways. The, the people in the textbooks, the Greeks and Romans you see in the textbooks are white. Uh, you, there's often, it's often said that uh, it's the, the presentation of ancient Greek sculptures and buildings as all this sort of bright white and everything. Uh, and then the kind of elevation of whiteness as some, or like the being white as being some sort of a, a code for racism, or code for that this is a this is a white a white person's endeavor. Um, these kinds of things get raised, but I think it's these are more superficial, and I think the uh, the real I think animus toward classics is centered on the fact that. <clears throat> They're thought to be the study of these texts, these ancient Greek and Roman texts, uh, the histories, the literature, and so on, is foundational to Western civilization. Um, and there's an animus toward the notion of Western civilization, uh, and I think toward the content of what you would characterize as Western civilization. Uh, and there's a question of, like, how do you think about Western civilization? It's often like at that panel discussion at the, the Classic Society meeting. The moment that the uh, questioner had said, uh, well, we should defend this, the classics, because it's, you know, core to Western civilization. One of the panelists, I believe it was uh, classics professor uh, Sarah Bond, I think it was, um, 
she said, Western civilization is a construct. Uh, and that notion has a lot of currency today. Um, I mean, it's a construct in the sense, if you mean it's, it's not found out there in the world somewhere, it's, a, it's an abstraction. Um, but to put it as a construct is to say that it's, an un, it's unreal in the sense it's a fantasy, it's a myth. Um, so to say that classics are really important because they're foundational to Western civilization, people will say Western civilization is in effect a white myth, a white origin story about this is where we came from. We look back to the, the greats, the alleged greats um, in ancient Greece and Rome, and that's what gives us our sort of foundation or um, that's what gives, I don't know, a continuing or enduring value to, uh, to Western civilization. But there's a real animus toward Western civilization as such. And I think, Ankar, you wanted to say a word about that. We chatting earlier a bit about this. Yeah, so let's, uh, I read some more about, you brought up one of the pan, panelists, Bond, who responded to, West, as you said, Western civilization as a construct. I read a little bit more of her view, what she teaches, um, and part of what they're reacting to, and this is what often happens in debates, I think, is they're reacting to people who give a uh, completely distorted account of the history leading to something that they like. So in this particular case, they're part of what they're responding to are actual white supremacists. In a lot of these articles, two things are brought up over and over, which is Charlottesville, the demonstrations there, and the fact that some of the imagery and some of the people, what they say is, we need to go back to our Greek-Roman foundations. Um, this is when we were at our best, and it's white. And so, and so they're, um, you can think of it as they're co-opting Greek-Roman studies authors as, look, they support our viewpoint. I think that is a complete distortion of the best that is in Greek-Roman um, thought and Greek-Roman history. But we, we can talk about that in a moment. But they're responding to that a completely distorted picture of the history. Uh, you can think of it just narrowly as the history of America and America's roots being in Europe and Europe's roots being in the Greek-Roman period and the Greek-Roman thought and achievements. The, and they'll, they'll, she'll, for instance, Bond will bring up things like, yeah, well, it's true that the Western Roman Empire fell and we had something more akin to the Dark Ages. But in the East, the Eastern Roman Empire didn't fall. And there's a long history there. And you can see developments of thought and you can see interactions with the Arab world. And you can, it's not put exactly like this, but I think this is part of what happens. You can see Greek ideas gain traction in the Arab world and the what we call now the Middle East. And, so, and it, it's a more complex, a richer history. That's true. But that doesn't change the fact that um, the, there's achievements in the Greek and Roman period. I mean, it's per, if you took one, it's for sure the Greek period, that are new achievements, new ideas, the new development of, I mean, broadly, I think of it as there's developments in science and philosophy, and there's developments in political thought and organization that are new 
that are new in human history, that are major advances, and that are later built upon, including built upon by Enlightenment figures and the founding fathers and the creation of the United States. And so to think of it foundational from that perspective, that there's new achievements here that led to, if you look at it from, from the perspective of human life, to incredibly positive things. That's not everything was great in Greece or Rome, but it led to new positive ideas, values, and ability to live, and that this was later built upon. That, I think, is true, and it's important, and it's the primary reason why it's studied. It's that you there's a lot to learn from the Greek-Roman period. It's not to say that everything just is to be accepted uncritically, but um, the idea that it's just on par with any other um, kind of civilization is, I think, it, it's just false. It's the, the and again, particularly the Greek and the discovery of reason, science, and the real building of these into fields. It's such a major, major, major accomplishment. Take another question. Wouldn't the critical race theorists say that they're not claiming that disparities are caused by conscious bias, but by a system, but by a systemic inequality, um, i.e., something about the field is attracting too many white men and not enough minorities or women or whichever? Um, probably so. Uh, but and there are a couple of things to say about that. One is if it's just like you have to prove conscious bias, I think you have to prove unconscious bias. I mean, that can't just be a wild card that's thrown in to cover the gaps, in effect. Um, I think there are, I mean, I, I don't know, enough, neither of us, neither Encore nor I are classics professors, and so we're not kind of immersed in that world. Um, but there, I think, are reasons why, um, whether they're demographic reasons or whichever, why certain people would go into classics. I mean, one is, could be economic uh, in the sense that, like, what are you going to do with a classics degree? <laughs> it's like, you're not going to get paid much. There's very few jobs that are available. So, I mean, if you're, if you're going into school and you're focused uh, on, look, I need to have a career that I can envision as I can support myself. There are job opportunities and stuff. There are all sorts of reasons not to go into classics. And you could imagine that if you uh, are more comfortable, like financially more comfortable, that the fields that don't pay that well, or there's just more risk in terms of uh, job prospects afterward is less of a concern for you. So there, I'm, I'm sure there are some, some kind of economic considerations. Um, I think for some people, uh, if you see that the vast majority of the faculty uh, are uh, white, that that might, for some, be a, a deterrent. Uh, so I, I don't know how how uh, how important that is, but the I said something that is relevant. I said earlier on that's relevant to this question, and it's relevant to thinking: Are people seriously grasping with the issues, or is it they have a viewpoint that they already, for other reasons? Are advocating, and then they're pretending to marshal evidence in favor of it. Like I found Padilla's presentation too much, like the pretense of evidence for a conclusion that he's reached and holds for other reasons. And here, so 
if it was that was that what is being objected to is that the field's not attracting enough uh, uh, people, so it's only is appealing to white men, you would not then target the journals. Then it would be the journal, the, maybe the journals function perfectly well. They, they get articles and they, um, they, they give them to blind reviewers and they publish the ones that they think are best. And the reason it's dominated by males is because most of the submissions were made. And there's nothing problematic about the functioning of the journal. You wouldn't say, like, look at the journals. We have to reform the, and we have to have people who are being published, not published, and other people being published. That, if you, if you really thought it's, we're not attracting the right people, that would be your focus. Then, like, how do we attract the right people, not go after the journals? And if you're going after the journals, it tells you, even if they say, yeah, what we're really concerned about is we're not attracting enough um, diverse kind of, we're not appealing to a diverse student body. And diverse can be in various ways because uh, one of the kinds of charges is you need a fair amount of money to engage in classic study. And so and so it could be that it's just people, students, they could be really interested in classics, but don't have the means to really partake in the field. So, so you could think that, but then your target would be very different and your solutions would be very different. So I think, for instance, to take a, a related but different issue, STEM education, science, technology, engineering, um, particularly, that there is there are forces in the culture that push against women entering these fields. I think it's much less than it used to be, but I think there still are. And if people who run programs where they're particularly trying to encourage um, women, like, you know, this is a viable career option. And um, I didn't mention the M, the mathematics, They're for sure. I mean, when I was a student, I think there was pressures on like math, men do math, women don't really do math. I think that was, you. I could see people getting that message, even if it was not explicit, that it in the way the whole functioning of the schools was, you could get that message. And that you have people um, then saying that it's it's a part of their project is to tell women, no, this is you can do math, you can do science, and if this is a career that interests you, it's a career you should pursue. And so it's not that would, but that again is different than saying what we need in these fields is fifty percent representation, male, female, or if there's a little more female, like we need 53, 47, because there's a, a little more females in the population. No, you don't need representation. That is that idea of representation is bogus that it's like i'm half indian half german i don't represent indians i don't represent germans i don't represent a mix of what people are half indian half german i don't there's no such thing as unchosen representation like that you elect a representative so if, uh, if you voted for biden you can say he's your representative or your member of congress there's there's not representation based on race sex and so on. and so there can be valid concerns about this kind of thing, that we're not attracting the right people, but it would look very different than what you're seeing, sort of like the faculty letter to, from Princeton. The demands are so different than that. Yeah. And uh, Ayn Rand talks about that notion of what it, uh, being a representative, thinking of somebody as a representative of a group or a gender in, uh, uh, what was it called? It was a representation without authorization. I think it was yes. a piece in uh, 
in the voice of reason. Um, I mean, if I was a faculty member, whether it's a philosophy department or classics department or wherever it is, and I noticed that 90% or something of my, of the majors and stuff are of a particular, uh, if they're all men for some, I would at least wonder why, why that is. And I would be, I would be curious about that. Not so I can get some gender parity, but like, what are we doing in the field? Is there something that's, it's, uh, unattractive for whatever reason that we're, or are we doing something that would in some way discourage some of our qualified applicants, not women, but some of the qualified applicants. There's a difference between saying, let's hire more people of race X or Z, um, rather than let's make sure that the value of what we're bringing in this field is regarded as open to and possible for anyone who wants to study it. Anyone who wants to, I mean, because one of the issues was the, 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 the language requirement. Uh, they have to study Latin and Greek. Uh, I mean, and uh, Padilla is an interesting case here because he was, uh, uh, he has an interesting story. I mean, he was, he's, uh, he was coming here. He was undocumented, uh, coming from Dominican Republic. Uh, he had a tough time uh, in his early years here. Uh, I think at a certain point, uh, he was living in a, a, the New York homeless shelter system uh, as a kid. Um, but he managed to get into, um, well, yeah, apparently, in a way, it's a nice story. Uh, there was a, um, a, a guy that was doing some volunteer art uh, teaching. Uh, I think he was going from shelter to shelter, and he met Padilla as a kid. Uh, and he seemed very precocious and intelligent. Uh, and he managed to get him, help him get into an elite uh, New York uh, prep school. So he already in middle school and high school, he's reading Greek and Latin and stuff. And, and he, he really made a, a career for himself. I mean, he, he went to all sort of elite universities um, and is now I mean, a tenured faculty at Princeton. So, um, you know, it's not everyone has that kind of opportunity. And so uh, that's one of the things. So if the, if the language is a barrier to entrance into my discipline, what can I do? Uh, and sometimes there are barriers that are just there because they need to be there. Otherwise you can't do work in the field. So it doesn't mean just making everything easy. Um, yes. Another question we let's see here. Uh, hold on. Let me, let me read this clearly. So one of the questions coming in from YouTube, it says uh, race is a social construct that, well, I guess this is a, more of a statement. Race is a social construct that has been used throughout through history to oppress non-whites. You can never get to the ideal of individualism without pointing out and uprooting systemic racism anywhere. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what I would say about that first sentence. Uh, th there's a question of how to think about race, and this is not something that I have studied a lot, but there's a question is, I mean, because some people think of races as... Uh, they're defined by nature in a sense. There are like eight races or whatever it is, and everybody's going to fall into one category because it's somehow uh, sort of predefined. And then other people, it's it's a way of conceptualizing or categorizing people based on certain kinds of physical or observable characteristics, which is um, either arbitrary or there are all sorts of different ways in which one could do it. Uh, in the in that sense, it's not uh, sanctioned by nature. It's not built into the world somehow. Um, so there's a question about what, how to think about what race is, um, whether it's been used throughout history to oppress non-whites. I mean, I think it, it's, it, 
people have been oppressing whites, non-whites um, for a long time on the basis of race. I mean, racism is a, is a long-standing historical feature of human existence. It didn't start in 1776 in America. I mean, racism is a long-standing issue and it's widespread. It's all over the world. Uh, I think in part because uh, it's not stemming as much from, there are all these historical causes or I read a book on race and now I'm a racist. It's more a, I mean, what Ayn Rand called this is something like a feature of the anti-conceptual mentality. It's like, it's somebody who can't, grasp a common humanity with people who look different. And so they categorize people on these perceptual level um, characteristics. Like you look different than me. You're not one of us. It's that kind of limited kind of mentality uh, that's at the root of this uh, way of viewing people as they're outsiders. And there's the in and the out based on, you know, you're, you're dark and I'm light uh, or whichever. Uh, it's a primitive kind of mentality. And so it will always be with us, I think, uh, because those that kind of primitive mentality, I don't mean primitive like ancient man or something, but I mean primitive level mentality is widespread. I mean, we just look at today's racist. And to, to get, to, to give a little more flesh to the, why it's important to have a, broader notion of the racism than just its skin color. So you put it, Aaron, as people who look different. The in when Ayn Rand talks about this, she puts it as it's a form of determinism uh, and a form of collectivism where the group is determined on by physiological characteristics. And these physiological characteristics are viewed as essential to your identity. And so people who share these physiological characteristics are viewed as they're like me. And so we share this identity and people outside of this group who don't share these physiological characteristics don't have this identity. And it's crucial that like this is the core of our identity. That's what the issue is really about. And skin color is one way in which this can be done. But bloodlines, for instance, is another. If um, in, uh, uh, I, I mentioned that I'm half Indian. So the, the classification in regard to classes and castes is more along bloodlines, like in an aristocracy. But it's still racism in the sense that what's significant about you as an individual is this is your um, genetic makeup. This is your ancestry. This is biologically where you come from. This is your bloodline. And that's to your a Brahmin or your upper class or you're the untouchables as a result of your bloodline. Now, it's often fused with it's a result of your bloodline and your economic station and so on. But the essence of it is these, these unchosen physical characteristics. And it's not as though that this only happened in America with regard to slave slavery. You see it in all other cultures in one form or another. And to give one more uh, concrete, I spent a year when I was younger as a, as a young teenager in Ethiopia. 
it was in comparison to Canada, much, much more racist. And it was the the um, East Africans and the West Africans hated each other. Both didn't like the um, sort of Northern Africans, the more Arabs. Everybody hated the French. Um, and it was and explicitly in these terms, in these kind of the, the categories, categorizing people based on unchosen physical characteristics. And that's what the evil is. And if you think of it in those broader terms, it's you'll see that it's much more than just the issue of whites discriminating against blacks, which is a real issue. I mean, that is what racism looked like in the United States. But it's not, if you're thinking of it as this uh, phenomenon, that's not its only manifestation. Yes, and the way and the way she def- presents it in that article, uh, racism, which we're going to bring up later, she says racism, quote, racism is the lowest, most crudely primitive form of collectivism. It is the notion of ascribing moral, political, uh, moral, social or political significance to a man's genetic lineage. The notion that a man's intellectual or character, character traits are produced and transmitted by his internal body chemistry which means in practice that a man is to be judged not by his own character and actions, but by the characters and actions of a collective of ancestors. That kind of ties together both the issue of the physiological stuff and ancestors, that it's the unchosen aspects that make you who you are. Um, uh, And so in response to the, it was the kind of the solution was put as you can never get in the question, you can never get to the ideal of individualism without pointing out and uprooting systemic racism everywhere. I would take out systemic and I would say, yes, without uprooting racism everywhere, but you need this broad conception of what racism is. So it's not just the oppression of whites by uh, non-whites by whites. It's a much broader, anyone who looks at and thinks what's significant about a human being is these unchosen characteristics and how the person like what their ancestry is, is exhibiting racism. And if that's how you look at people, you don't see individuals. Yeah, and you also need a positive conception of the, the uh, of individualism, what it means to think of individuals as individuals, not as members of a, of a group that could be judged accordingly. Uh, and this goes back to, you raise the issue of determinism. Uh, it's what... Uh, what are you, what are you, what is an individual's actual chosen values? What kind of things that they think are true? What kinds of things that they think are good? What kinds of actions have they taken to form their character in a certain kinds of ways? Uh, and to see them as what what have they shaped themselves into? You know, not what forces were in the past uh, that allegedly made them who they are. And I think one of the you know, we're going to have to wrap up here pretty soon. But uh, one of the things I thought was interesting is that. Um, in that going back to the the classics panel, when uh, the questioner implied or suggested that uh, uh, Padilla might have been in effect hired because of his race, um, but that's exactly what he's advocating. He's advocating that people be hired. Be, and he said in some way, I should have been hired because I was black. He said this in uh, he, he published a piece on Medium, uh, kind of the reflections on this thing. Uh, and, you know, he said, my, 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 my Afro-Latinity or my Blackness is bound up with my merit. 
and there's this question like, what is the relationship between then his race and his merit? But because if you blend those two and think of it as my race is my merit, uh, no, I think that's all that that's all wrong. But if you think about it as you know the kind of background that I'm coming from, the experiences that I've had uh, as an immigrant growing up here, and I'm you know uh, um, black and stuff. Obviously, one's experience in terms of you know cultural experiences, interactions with people that does shape uh, in a way, in part, or at least it affects uh, the kinds of issues you think are important in some ways. The kind of things you want to try to combat or support. And so there's a relationship between one's experiences. Um, but, but I don't think you should bind that up with the notion of race. Um, uh, so we got only a few minutes here. Do you want to have any closing words on this, uh, Ankar? And then we're going to, I'll point the audience to some resources. I mean, I think we've basically um, made our closing. Yeah. I, I just want to reiterate one thing, which is, most of our cultural debates are between sides that are not exhaustive of the positions you could hold, and usually both are wrong. I mean, the, that's certainly my perspective. So in this case, it, there is this phenomenon of whitewashing Western history or American history, European history, and way downplaying the fact that there was slavery in America or that there was slavery in the Roman world. And it that whitewashing is really bad. Or just, even if it's not whitewashing, just ignoring of it, um, that it's not significant and didn't really play any role. No, slavery was significant in the ancient world. Um, it's not all along race that the slavery exists, but that there was slavery and that there's people who did not enjoy freedom. That's an important issue. It should be studied. It should be looked at. And there are um, the issue of it's ignoring or even worse, whitewashing it. But the solution is not then to become obsessed with race and then think, oh, no, race really matters. And this is the whole way we look at things. And uh, we have to forget about colorblindness. Um, and now it's we're going and it ends up being itself another manifestation of racism. Both sides are wrong. And what you should be trying to figure out is what is right here. And part of what was so depressing by looking at just some of the discussion about classics and so on, it's not clear how many people are actually even trying to figure out what is right versus it's I'm taking a position because um, this is what it's woke to do, or I don't want to threaten my job at the university. It's versus what's actually true here. And also what's actually valuable about the classics? Because, I mean, there's a reason why they're studied, uh, you know, for generation after generation. There's a real quality, as we said, the real quality in terms of the philosophy, the hist history writing and stuff. There's, there was no discussion of what's good about the classics and, what, and what's good about studying these things. Uh, so let's, uh, let's, let's wrap it up here. I want to... I point the audience to some resources. So I've mentioned uh, a few times Ayn Rand's article, Racism, uh, which is in, found in her book, The Virtue of Selfishness. Um, and there's an also another relevant article where she talks about racism and more broadly, the phenomenon she calls tribalism uh, in an article called Global Balkanization, which is in uh, Return of the Primitive, which used to be called Anti-Industrial Revolution. 
Uh, and next week uh, on New Idea Live, we're going to have uh, my colleague Ben Bayer and also Ankar Gata here again. Going to be discussing uh, lifting the lockdowns. Uh, and that's going to be on Wednesday, March 17, at same time, same place, basically, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. And if you're interested in the content and you want to follow us, uh, if you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe to our channel. Uh, click the bell to get notifications when we go live or post new material. Uh, please also like, share, comment on this video to help attract attention to the channel. Um, and if you're watching on Facebook, please like and or share. If you have questions uh, or comments for us, please email them to us. We, we do read them, uh, and in many cases, we'll respond to you. Uh, sometimes we take your suggestions for episode topics, so uh, go ahead and get in contact with us. So, uh, Ankar, thanks a lot for joining me today. Uh, it's a worthy topic to discuss, <laughs> and I'm yeah glad you're here with me. All right, thanks, everyone. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.